I wanted to talk tonight about an overview of the metta practice and which context it, it fits in and other related practices, some of which I think came up in the question period this afternoon. Uh, if you go back to when I last spoke at the end, um, I talked about metta being like our true home. And this is actually the way it's classically spoken of. There are four practices that are usually taught together, and together they are known as the four Brahma-viharas. Brahma means supreme or um, celestial. One translation I heard of it is the word best. And vihara means dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four states form our best home, which is an image that I appreciate a lot. Where do we really want to live? And like any home, we may not be there all the time. We certainly may wander and may wander quite far afield, but we know when we're back. We know when we've returned, when we've gotten back home. So these four qualities are our best home. The first is metta, loving kindness. And I want to present these in a very uh, kind of classical schema. When these qualities are talked about, usually, uh, they're also described in terms of their nature and, and how they function in our lives. And they're described in terms of what is called the far enemy, that which is clearly opposite. You would never confuse those two states. Then they're described in terms of their near enemy, something that's close enough so you could get confused, but is really very, very different when we know how to look. And they're described in terms of what's called their proximate cause. Proximate cause is the nearest arising condition or the almost like the logical, the natural springboard for the state to arise. It's certainly not the only place the state can come from, but it's, it's a very ready and natural link. You know, you put this thing into place, and metta will come forth more likely than not. So those are, those are the ways these qualities are described. Metta, loving-kindness, being friendship, Another translation that's sometimes used is gentle. It's likened to a gentle rain that falls upon the earth, not choosing to just fall over here and not fall anyplace else, but to suffuse, to cover the earth. And friendship. The far enemy of loving kindness, that sense of connection, that sense of care, is Aversion, and aversion in the Buddhist psychology is anger and fear, which are considered exactly the same mind state, just two different forms. The outflowing, energized form is anger. The kind of imploded, frozen, held-in form is fear. But they're just the same state in, in two different manifestations. It's interesting to look at that state some, I think, because there's some very positive qualities or attributes, certainly to the angry side. You know, sometimes anger or outrage is is what we need to be able to say no, to draw a boundary, to set a limit, to have a sense of integrity, to say, okay, this is not acceptable. But anger is likened in the Buddhist text to a forest fire which burns up its own support. And so it can leave us devastated. And like a forest fire which burns wild in that way, it can leave us very far from where we want to be. So it's not the energy of anger that is the problem. The energy of it can be a very good thing. It's the sort of blinding, deluded quality the raging that comes with it, 
so that we get confused, we get subsumed into a state. If you liken it to fear, I think it it becomes easier to understand in terms of its problematic nature. When was the last time you were really, really afraid and your mind happily considered different options? Well, if it doesn't work out this way, maybe it'll work out that way. No, that doesn't happen. The, almost like the definition of a state of aversion of anger or fear is tunnel vision. We get locked. Think about being angry at yourself when it's very difficult to forgive yourself for something you've done or something that you've said. And if you feel your way into that state, you can feel that what you're moving into is the sense of being shut down and closed in and things being very tight. When we're very angry at ourselves for that stupid thing we said, we don't also remember how generous we were that day, earlier in the day. Or how we later on had this encounter where we were particularly kind. We spent some time with somebody we weren't all that interested in. Gone. All that we remember, all that exists in that moment is the really stupid thing we said. That's the nature of that shutdown. And so it closes off closes off our world, closes off our sense of possibility, restricts our sense of who we are, makes us forget the context in which we're operating, makes us forget conditionality, makes us forget the law of change. Because when we're really angry at ourselves for that really stupid thing we said, we don't tend to think, tomorrow's another day. Maybe I'll be smart tomorrow <laughs> and at least keep quiet. No, tomorrow's going to be worse, you know, because we forget the law of change. Sometimes I, I tell this story about this time I was um, sitting at home at my computer and I got an email from somebody in which um, they asked me, what would you say is the problem with getting lost in anger? And with all of this, we're not talking about anger or fears arising. We're talking about being subsumed in it, having it define our world. So this person said, what would you say is the problem with getting lost in anger? And I responded to him by saying, well, one problem with getting lost in anger is that it has us put people in a box. Then I... I got offline, and I was doing something else with my computer, and something horrible happened in the relationship between my computer and my printer, (laughs) and it it broke, and I got really, really angry. I got down on my hands and knees, and I was like pulling out plugs and pushing in other plugs, trying to fix it. The first person I was really angry at was our computer assistant, who was on vacation in Hawaii. I was furious. And I kept thinking, how could he be gone when I need him so badly? Totally forgetting in like the, the rage of the anger, the blindness of the anger, completely forgetting that the reason he was on vacation was because I had decided he needed a vacation. And I'd gone to the airport and used my frequent flyer miles to get him a ticket. It was like it was gone. I put him in the box of the one who had abandoned me in my hour of need. And everything else, it was like it was wiped out. And then I was really angry at myself. I kept thinking, why can't you be the kind of person who can fix these things? You're so inept. You're so clumsy. You can't do anything like this. In the meantime, I fixed it. But I was so lost in that anger and that image of myself, I hardly even noticed that I fixed it. But I did fix it. And then I got back on my chair And after some time, I went back online, and there was my original correspondent who'd asked me the question, and he said, I don't really understand what you mean by saying that when we get lost in anger, we just put people in a box. And 
And I wrote back and I said, well, this is what just happened. You know, I put this other person in a box. I put myself in a box. It was that kind of shutting down. So when we talk about the practice of metta, the direct opposite is closing off, shutting down, having that kind of limitation, forgetting change, forgetting possibility. And what we try to do, certainly in the practice of mindfulness, is not lose the energy and the discernment that is often the gift of the anger. Like, no, this is not acceptable. And yet not get lost in that kind of cycle, just going round and round, raging, so that we end up devastated ourselves and may be very far from where we want to be. So we practice loving kindness. It's not to become this kind of weak, simpering creature. It's very strong, really. I think a lot of us, in looking back at the people we admire the most, either in our personal lives, you know, maybe family members or people we've encountered or teachers or people we've been inspired by in the world, on the world stage, there is that amazing quality of inclusiveness, of looking at others, seeing the potential within them, seeing the potential within us. It's an amazing strength. It's not something that you look back on and think, well, that person was a fool, you know? (laughs) It's tremendously admirable. And it shines. It shines forth. So the direct opposite of loving-kindness would be that sense of aversion. And the, the practice of metta is the practice of connection, of care, of paying attention. So we have the strength of loving-kindness in our actual encounters and relationships The near enemy, that quality which is very close, but not really the same, is attachment, as as we've been saying. You know, may you be happy by tonight so I can get a good night's sleep. (laughs) You know, may you be happy in precisely this way. I will love you as long as. And while that in our day-to-day lives is, it's normal, it's natural, that kind of conditionality. We all know how fragile it is and how dependent it is on things being a certain way and and how unfulfilling it is when we are continually seeking something from outside of ourselves as though it did not exist inside of ourselves. So the state of attachment is not bad or wrong. The Buddha talked about it as the root of suffering, and I find that very interesting. And one of the ways I've tried to understand the state is every time I would use the word attachment or I would hear the word attachment, I would substitute the word control. You know, when we get attached to something like an object, we are living in defiance of the truth of change. We do not want to allow this object to change. And a person becomes an object for us when we are in that mode. When a person becomes an object, then there is necessarily distance and separation. So attachment, however well-trained we are to it, is a state of a lot of pain and a lot of fear. We talk about it in Buddhist teaching as the hope-fear cycle. Hope doesn't mean hope in the way we ordinarily use the word. It means attachment. We get attached to things working out in precisely one way, and then we're really afraid. We get attached to somebody not changing, and we resent every sign of change. We get attached to things being just the way we picture And other people, other incidents, other experiences are seen as rivals, really, as competition for getting the thing we want to be the way we want it. So it's not 
really a very satisfying state. But it's so close to that sense of metta and so easy to get confused. You really need a lot of discernment to understand. And you need a real balance of mind, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. They say that metta is a practice of generosity. And that means a freely given gift. Rather than, we all know those times when we give somebody something and then we're just waiting to be thanked. Or have it have a certain effect. But it's really like a freely given gift. As compared to the force of attachment, which has all those strings and all of those conditions. And they say the proximate cause of loving kindness, the easiest springboard for it to arise, um, are those two reflections I mentioned before. One is seeing the good in someone. When we take the time to see the good, even a very narrow little sliver of good in ourselves or in somebody else, there's naturally a sense of a bridge between us And when we can't do that, then that basic remembrance that all beings want to be happy. Everybody just wants to be happy. And so very few of us know how. We're so similar on a certain level. We want to be happy. We're vulnerable to change, to loss, to difficulty. And you can see this springboard and also the, the very nature of, of loving-kindness when tomorrow we move on to offering loving-kindness to the neutral person. Because the neutral person is somebody, by definition, we don't strongly like or dislike. We feel kind of neutral about them. And this is often, even just coming to this place in the practice is often an interesting Time. Sometimes people discover they don't have very many neutral people in their lives. That once they meet somebody or even hear that they exist, they have a judgment about them. You know, they like them or they don't like them. But very often what we discover is that we have quite a large number of neutral people in our lives. That for all we recognize, this other person is a living, breathing being that wants to be happy, just like we do, they might as well be a piece of furniture. We have really objectified them. They are the other. And that can be kind of shocking. Very often in a retreat setting, we suggest that you try to choose a neutral person here. If there remains somebody here, you have not categorized (laughs) as liking or disliking just because you will tend to run into them now and then, and it's kind of interesting, you know, just as a a rush, like, oh, this is my neutral person. (gasps) Um, And if nobody here will do, then very often there is somebody who plays a role in your life of some kind, because those tend to be the ones we look right through that we do not recognize, that we do not really see. What happens is, you know, we, we choose a neutral person and we can't look for the good in them because we don't know them. And we're also not moved by the sorrow of their life because we don't know them. We don't know their story. We don't know their situation. But we can know they want to be happy simply because they exist. And in the offering of loving kindness to this person, what we are really practicing is paying attention in a situation where we normally have not paid attention, perhaps at all. And simply as a result of paying attention, finally, it's like that person comes alive for us, and we find that we care. And here, too, you know, you you may not feel this enormous rush of a conventional sense of love. But there is some kind of connection that is built. Like very often um, in retreat, you know, especially when we teach uh, longer retreats and we do metta 
threaded throughout those as well. And somebody chooses a neutral person here in, in the retreat, they'll say, you know, day after day, sometimes week after week, I don't feel anything for them. You know, I just don't feel anything for them. And, and then one day I'll get a note that'll say, you know, my neutral person wasn't at breakfast. Could you check on them for me? And, and then I'll think, yeah, that's just what they want. You know, it's like me coming to their room. I'm sure they're fast asleep. But, you know, it's that sense of like that person is one, it's one of mine, you know, like I've got to look out for that person. Maybe they're not so well or, you know, something's wrong. And it just happens. Maybe not even learning the person's name. But that is very much the, the function of metta. It's that sense of we're on each other's side. Like them or don't like them. This has got to be a kind of consciousness in this world rather than us and them and self and other. So that's the, the power of, of metta. And the second of the Brahma-viharas is that of compassion, which is known as the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. It's an actual movement of the heart in response to witnessing pain. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. And that, I think, is not so very commonly our biggest problem. It's not so often that we recognize that someone is suffering and we say, good, (laughs) you know, may you suffer more. Our problem is more something else, which is, first of all, we don't recognize suffering as suffering. We don't see the states that come up in our own mind when we're consumed with jealousy and anger and fear We don't necessarily recognize those as states of suffering. We think they're bad. It means we're a terrible person or we're a weak person. So we need to make that effort to see them and call them for what they are, which is suffering. And we see other people's situation. We see them consumed by states like anger or fear, and we don't recognize that as suffering either. So that, in fact, tends to be a much bigger problem than a a kind of frank enjoyment of somebody's pain. We need to be able to pause. We need to be able to see clearly. We need to be able to name suffering as suffering. And then we have the problem of opening to it. Our entire lives, for most of us in this society have been geared toward avoiding suffering at any cost, one's own or someone else's. And so when we're in pain or we're afraid or we're sick or even, you know, tragically sometimes when we're dying, uh, it's all considered or can be considered a kind of personal humiliation. The message of the society is this shouldn't have happened. If you'd held it together a little better, you know, this wouldn't have happened. And we're taught that that pain and suffering is not okay. It doesn't really work in a consumer society because you can't, you know, if if you're opening to pain or suffering, you're not necessarily buying all the things that you might buy as a totem against loss and change. It's quite difficult looking at our own suffering to say, yeah, this is natural. This is a part of things. This is a part of life. And looking at the suffering of others, not to feel like, oh, you know, they might contaminate me. I better put them away somewhere. It takes a lot of courage and a very new view of the nature of things to actually open and say, yeah, here it is. So from the first time I heard the Buddha say, there is suffering in life, it was this huge relief. I thought, wow, nobody said that in New York. 
So that is a challenge for us. And then we have the challenge which has to do with the near enemy of suffering. And this is a hard one to translate. Sometimes it's of compassion. I mean, the near enemy of compassion. The translation sometimes is sorrow. Sometimes it's grief. Um, It doesn't mean grief or sorrow in the way we use those terms in the West, in the psychological, contemporary way we use it. It really means being broken by the suffering that we see. The idea being that if we are consumed by our own pain in seeing someone else's pain, we don't have a lot of energy to try to make a difference for them, to try to be of service. And what's really taken center stage is our own pain. So more even than their state, it's once again about us. And we can be broken by suffering that we see so that we're just exhausted, we're debilitated, we're burnt out. And we get frustrated at not being able to make it all better. And so our own helplessness rules the day, not compassion. It's very easy to confuse the two states, very easy, but they're different. Compassion is that state of sufficiency that connects to everybody and cares, but isn't insisting on being in control to make it all better. Because there are many, many, many situations where we just cannot. And that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do or should do. More likely, you know, our conditioning in those times when we can't be in control is to pull away, it's to withdraw. So even learning how to be present fully without withdrawing is an act of, of great compassion. Several years ago, about four years ago, the Dalai Lama came to New York City. And uh, some of you might have been there, actually. He gave a few days of teaching in a rented theater, and then he uh, gave a big public talk in Central Park. And um, a friend of mine organized the whole Thing And I knew her really great desire was for many, many people to come to Central Park. You know, it was free. Um, there was no registration. There was no way of knowing how many people would come. She wanted it really open and really diverse. And uh, those of you who were in the city at the time know that virtually every subway station, you got out of the subway and there was a big poster of the Dalai Lama <laughs> announcing his talk in Central Park. And um, and then the day before he was going to speak, it poured rain. And I woke up on the morning of the actual talk thinking, I hope it's not raining. <laughs> and it wasn't. Uh, it had stopped raining. And I went to the park. And then when I entered the park, I couldn't see anything. But I could hear the sound of Tibetan monks chanting in the distance. So I just followed the sound as I went into the park, and then I turned a corner, and there was like an ocean of people. It was just this massive numbers of people. The unofficial estimates were like 250,000 people, and that's what it looked like. Everywhere the eye could land, there were people. We sat down and waited for him in a very unusual kind of quiet for that size crowd. And when the Dalai Lama finally started speaking, he started with, a statement I found quite remarkable, and he said, you know, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said, I had to assume temporal power when I was 16. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to try daily to keep an exiled culture intact. I've had to daily hear about... um, the terrible suffering going on within Tibet, he said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) (laughs) 
which of course is what one sees in him. You know, he doesn't seem really morose. Uh, he said, I'm pretty happy. Because, he went on to say, now obviously this is an unusual kind of happiness. This isn't happy like in happy-go-lucky, the kind of happiness that's cut off or oblivious or ignoring the suffering that is. He said, the reason that I'm pretty happy, even though it hasn't been such an easy life, is because of compassion. He said, compassion makes me feel at one with everyone. And he said, this gives me a very special kind of happiness. So that's kind of the nature of it. And it was so remarkable because I was sitting there in that crowd thinking, you know, of the, say, 250,000 of us sitting there, I bet a lot of us could have said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And not all that many of us could have said, but I'm pretty happy. So there's something in compassion. Even though we're looking at pain, we're opening to pain, and we're moved by pain, and it's genuine, we're affected by pain, there's something in there in, in not holding up a barrier and feeling at one with others, recognizing how universal that truth is. It's not just me. It's never just me. There's something in there that binds us together that is its own kind of happiness in a way. And that's the difference. So we work to name suffering as suffering, to open to suffering, to have some balance in the face of suffering, to realize we can't make it all better. But we can be there in that kind of solidarity, that kind of togetherness that doesn't draw such distinctions. You know, you are suffering and I do not. Something like that. And I think even the, you know, now, nowadays so many people are doing research on meditation, um, which you'll be glad to know shows some good effect. And, uh, you know, and they pop people into MRI machines and say, now do compassion meditation, you know, and they do compassion meditation. And one of the parts of the brain that really lights up is the part that is like satisfaction. You know, it's got like a happy quality to it. I'm sure you're glad to hear that. <laughs> And then the proximate cause of, of compassion is being able to see suffering, not to look the other way. It's paying attention to, to the vulnerability. It's not that we suffer all of the time, but that potential, the movement of life is such. And we all know, you know, life can change in one moment, really radically. This is something that we share. Then the third Brahmavihara is kind of the energetic opposite of that, and that is sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy is actually feeling joy and happiness and the happiness of others. Rather than, you know, we see somebody being successful or having good fortune in some kind, and rather than falling sway to the voice which arises in our minds, which says, ew, you know, I would be happier if you just had a little bit less going for you right now. (laughs) Now, you don't have to lose everything, but, you know, if the light could just dim a little bit, I would be sort of pleased about that. Um, It's very common to feel jealous, to feel envious, the basis of that kind of feeling of the, of the jealousy and the envy is, is usually the sense that happiness is like a limited commodity in this world, and, and the more somebody else has, the less there's going to be for us. And so we're frightened, we're threatened when we see somebody has something going for them. And, and yet, really, is happiness a limited commodity? Are we going to lose anything because somebody is gaining something else. It's something that takes a very honest and kind of rigorous investigation to pay attention to. And they say that of these states of the Brahma Viharas, 
sympathetic joy can be the most difficult. Some people have it naturally, which I find an amazing thing, and I admire, you know, enormously. The rest of us need to cultivate it in some way. And, and I think we all know the nature of sympathetic joy because we know what it's like to be the recipient of it or not. And when something really, really good happens for us, and some people are so happy for us, and how beautiful a gift that is, you can just feel that they are so delighted that this good thing has happened for us. Whereas other people, you know, they may smile and they may act like they're happy, but they're not so happy. And you can feel that too and how, how kind of draining that is or debilitating that is when you feel that they really resent me. They're not happy that this thing happened for me. And it feels so bad. So we can get a sense of the flavor, the nature of sympathetic joy and just how beautiful it is. The opposite of it, the far enemy, you know, clearly is, is envy or jealousy, resenting what someone else has. The near enemy, I've seen um, translated as different ways. One is, is giddiness. It's like being happy for no good reason. Um, and the other, which I think is more telling in some way, is comparing. We look at the status, the situation of someone else, not for the sake of having joy for them, but to sort of figure out where they are relative to where we are. And comparing, uh, interestingly enough, in the Buddhist psychology, is a state that is considered unwholesome or unskillful, which means painful, It means a state of suffering. No matter what conclusion it is we draw in making the comparison, like we may look at somebody and decide we're better than they are or worse than they are or equal to them, but it's still an unwholesome or painful mind state because it's so restless, it's so agitating to always be comparing oneself to others. You know, and sometimes we use the example of here on retreat where there's no real way of knowing what other people are experiencing, so we project. And we use measures that are really maybe not that meaningful or or authentic, but it's all we've got. You know, so somebody will think something like, well... You know, that person sitting next to me hasn't moved this whole sitting, and I've moved five times, you know, so they must be a much better meditator than I am, you know, and then the person sitting on the other side moves before you move, and you think, oh, good, you know, (laughs) like, I'm really much better than they you know, and then you kind of place yourself in comparison to everyone sitting around you and as far as you can hear, you know, throughout the rest of the room. And, you know, and then you go back to that person who moved before you did and you think, oh, wait a minute. You know, I came in from the walking and they were already sitting here. You know, what if they sat that whole previous sitting and they sat all the way through the walking and they only moved 15 minutes into that second sitting. They're much better than I am, you know, and then you have to kind of redo everything. And then, you know, and then somebody new comes and you have to do it all over again. And it's very restless, you know, it's just this constant, like, hankering to know who we are relative to someone else. So it's really, it's a very painful state. Whatever conclusion we may temporarily draw, it's only temporary. We practice sympathetic joy to break free of that kind of comparing. And here the Dalai Lama also said something quite wonderful. He said, it only makes sense to practice joy in the happiness of others because then we increase our own chances of happiness six billion to one. He said, those are very good odds. And I thought about that, and I thought, that is so cool. I thought, you know, if you want to be happy, you don't have to spend any money. You don't even have to get dressed in the morning. (laughs) 
All you need to do is think about someone else's happiness, be happy for them, and you're there. You know, look at that. Those are pretty good odds. You think about it the other way, you know, if you're resenting six billion people's happiness, you know, it's a pretty tough day. So we practice sympathetic joy. Now those three, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, are often practiced in a bundle. You know, we in fact have been practicing that, even though not explicitly. Yesterday when we did loving kindness for a friend who was having a good time that had the flavor of sympathetic joy. Today when we practice loving kindness for a friend who was having a difficult time, that was the opening to compassion. They're very supportive of one another, even though they're somewhat distinct, and you can choose to practice them as separate techniques. And then the proximate cause of sympathetic joy is opening to joy. That's why it's the energetic balance to compassion, because we can't only open to suffering. We need to open to joy as well. We need to open to everything. If we were insisting on only opening to joy, we'd clearly be in trouble because our world would get very, very narrow and frivolous. But we can't only open to suffering because we'll get exhausted. And it will fall into that near enemy. We need both. And so whether we choose to practice them as separate practices, which can be done, or to use a, a vehicle like metta, as a foundation vehicle to incorporate the other two, that's also really fine. It will happen. It will strengthen. Then the last of the Brahmaviharas is equanimity, which means balance of mind. When I was first practicing all of this in Burma, I couldn't quite understand what equanimity was doing in there. It seemed so different from the other three. I could understand the relationship between the other three, but equanimity seemed a whole other thing. And it was only in the actual practice of it that I saw that equanimity was actually the underpinning of the other three. It's actually the force of equanimity which allows each of the three Brahmaviharas of metta, compassion, and sympathetic joy not to fall into its near enemy. That's what allows it to be a freely given gift, to be something that isn't so conditioned, conditional, looking for payback, to be something that is much freer than that. It's actually equanimity that is the sneaky ingredient in all of it. Equanimity is really about balance. I often think of it as the voice of wisdom. It's the articulation of wisdom. It's realizing things are as they are, that life is as it is. There's change. Things are out of control. We'll do the best we can. We can't always make it work. Life is bigger than what we see just in front of us and more mysterious. We can't always know the result of our action by what we see in front of us. We have to be able to let go. We have to have some bigger picture in mind. That's equanimity. The far enemy of equanimity is reactivity. It's attachment and aversion, just going round and round and round, having pleasant experience and wanting to hold on, having unpleasant experience, wanting to push away. It's very tiring. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. So equanimity is not indifference, but it can be confused. It means balance. And because of the way equanimity infuses the other Brahma-viharas, it really is the essential ingredient. They say that equanimity endows loving-kindness with patience. Otherwise, it's awfully easy to say, be happy by tonight, in the image that I've decreed you should be happy in. It says that, the teachings say that equanimity endows compassion with courage because it's not easy to open to suffering without getting lost. It's not easy at all. And it said that equanimity opens sympathetic joy 
beyond the usually very narrow group of people we are willing to be happy for when they're happy, it really makes it more of an open state because we see happiness comes and goes. Sorrow comes and goes. This is the nature of things. Do we really want someone to only suffer? That's not so likely. It's because we forget how changeable everything is, how out of control everything is. That's why we get so lost in, in that sense of being freaked out when someone else is happy. But if we can have some balance, we can open. We can really, in fact, be delighted and grateful that they have that happiness. So equanimity is the key. We get equanimity through mindfulness, through seeing things as they are. It's the the great gift of mindfulness is learning. It's insight. It's having a realistic sense of, of life. And we get equanimity through actually practicing it. Either as its own practice or threaded throughout the metta. When you hear yourself say, in effect, be happy now, <laughs> you know, you calm down. <laughs> you say, I'm not in control of the unfolding of the universe. I'm going to do what I can. It's very much the sense of planting seeds. You know, we say one of those phrases, it's like planting a seed in the ground, and we don't know how long it's going to take to flower, just what it's going to look like, but we can trust that that is really our work. If we don't have equanimity, we don't have any patience. My uh, friend and colleague, Joseph Goldstein, tells this story often about himself where uh, he was, I think, maybe nine years old, and he grew his first, and I believe his last, garden. And he says that when the, he grew some carrots, and when the green fluffy stuff on top of the carrots would start to show, he would get so excited that he'd pull up the carrots to help them grow faster. You know, you don't get much of a crop that way. We need to understand things take time. Healing takes time. Nature takes its own time. So we plant the seeds. We do our work, which is showing up. It's being present in a literal technical sense. It's saying the phrase with wholeheartedness. That's our job. Then we let go. We can't know what it will mean. We need to have that kind of balance. And to know that there's always change in, in this universe. When we say, may you be happy, if that seems to imply kind of that giddy state, you know, with no problems, that's also unlikely. It means something much deeper than that. With a realistic view of life and how we go up and we go down and things change, Can there be something steadfast that isn't destroyed, isn't broken by those cycles? That's what we're really wishing for ourselves and for someone else. Because the cycles are just the the nature of life. It's the fabric of life. The Buddha said, he talked about life as having eight vicissitudes of pleasure and pain and gain and loss, praise and blame and fame and disrepute. He said, this is it for everybody. It's not just pleasure. It's not just praise. You know, and I often think about those instances where we do something and we get both praise and blame for it because it's so telling. It's such a striking teaching about how out of control we are. You know, I know some of you have... um, either uh, through your own practice, you know, have been bowing to the Buddha or you've seen some of us bowing to the Buddha 
at different times. And I remember the first time it ever happened here. Um, in Asia, Buddha statues aren't really considered works of art. They're considered sacred objects. And so there's a certain protocol that is natural in Asia because when you look at a Buddha and you bow to a Buddha, you're bowing to something about human possibility and about yourself and about life and love and all of that. So it's, it's, you wouldn't ever see like a Buddha with a hat rakishly on their heads, you know, like you'd see in magazine ads and things here. You know, it's, it's really held in a certain way as a sacred object. And so the tradition in Asia is to bow to the Buddha statue as for all it symbolizes, not as a kind of idol, you know, but for everything it symbolizes about human potential. And so um, when we actually first opened this center, it was the kind of discussion we would have ad nauseum. Uh, you know, should we have Buddha statues? After all, coming here and doing this practice for however long has nothing to do with becoming a Buddhist, you know, or rejecting anything else. So it's kind of weird to have Buddha statues. On the other hand, you know, everything we taught was held in the, the um, almost like the methodology and the, the language and the imagery of Buddhism. So it's a sign of respect. Plus, we had a lot of Buddha statues, some of us. Uh, you know, so... Uh, not me, but some of my colleagues had quite a number of Buddha statues. Um, you know, so we discussed it forever and finally decided, okay, we'll have Buddha images. And, and then one day, one of the teachers decided that he wanted to bow to the Buddha statue because that was, you know, like his training. You know, he'd done that for years. And, and so he did it. He bow- came and he bowed, sat down, led the sitting, rang the bell, by the time he got to the bulletin board, there were notes for him. He pulled, and you know how far away that is. That's not so far away. He pulled off one note, which said, I was really happy to see you bow to the Buddha. You know, I myself have a strong devotional side, and it meant a lot to me to know that that could be allowed here and find expression here. And then the next note he pulled off the board said, I was appalled to see you bow to the Buddha statue. You know, that might work in Asia. It has nothing to do with the West. It's so highly misinterpreted here. I think you made a big mistake. You should never have done that. There you are. And it wasn't like he was asking anybody else to bow to the Buddha statue. You know, it was a very personal decision that he made. But, you know, 30 seconds, one minute after ringing the bell, there was praise and blame there. It's like that the nature of things. So we have equanimity, not indifference, not not caring, but wisdom. To say, yeah, that's how things are, actually. There's change. There's elements of life outside of our control. And we bring all of that wisdom to bear on the development of the tremendous force of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy so that it's genuine and it's real and it's sustainable in our actual lives. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.